You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I owe a few people an apology. Uh, at the 8 a.m., I made the comment that it was a little thin and that going to church at 8 a.m. sounds like a good idea until it's 8 a.m. But then I learned that there was like a 45-minute to an hour backup on the highway, and several people who were intended to be here were on the highway when I said that. So my apologies. Calm down, everybody. I'm just here to hold you accountable is all I'm doing. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, this summer, I had this opportunity, kind of a trip of a lifetime, to take my PhD studies across the pond to the one and only Oxford University. And during that time, the research uh, focus for the summer was the theology of the British Reformation. It was just a tremendous experience. Uh, we were given access to several of the world-class facilities there uh, at Oxford, the Bodleian Library, the Angus Library, two of which uh, just amazing, invaluable historical Christian artifacts. Uh, in London, we went to the King's Library. We saw the, the British Museum. Again, uh, just invaluable, timeless artifacts, a part of our Christian heritage. We visited, visited lecture halls that were at one time occupied by theological giants. I mean, it was for me, for the academic in me, it was, it was just a trip of a lifetime. And really, even beyond the academic in me, it was a time of, of I think, tremendous personal spiritual formation. Before arriving in Oxford, we took several trips around England and Scotland to see these various landmarks in the history of our Christian faith, and uh, we were able to go into and learn more about the Metropolitan Tabernacle, if you're familiar with this church. It is a building that was uh, built by um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, the pastor of that church for, for many, many years. That church was also pastored by notable uh, preachers, Benjamin Keach and John Gill, if you're uh, at all a Baptist history guy uh, or gal, you would really uh, be, those are big names. But we also saw <coughs> the grave of John Bunyan, uh, author of Pilgrim's po Progress, uh, one, of the, one of the, I think, more meaningful parts of that trip was seeing the home of who is, we refer to as the godfather of the modern missions movement, a man by the name of William Carey. Uh, we were able to go and see his house, the home where he lived in, um, right next to the church where he pastored. And I was reminded of Carey this week as I was preparing for this passage, for this particular passage of scripture in Mark chapter 1. Carey was a man of profound calling on his life. A man wholly devoted to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, specifically to India. If you've ever studied, read about William Carey, he uh, took his missionary efforts to India. He spent over four decades there uh, pastoring, proclaiming the gospel, witnessing, establishing schools, just did a tremendous amount of things, had a, a tremendous sense of call on his life, sometimes honestly to a personal fault. Uh, the way his family suffered under his busy schedule is, is a notable part of and, and a warning, I think, to, to pastors today as we evaluate people like Kerry, uh, things that we should do, maybe things that we shouldn't do. Uh, but, but Kerry... I mentioned him in a sermon in July, right when I returned back from England. He's probably most well known for a phrase uh, that, that he would say all the time. He really lived his life by this sort of motto. He would say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. 
And, and he really did. He lived this out in his life in a, in a, in a manner, uh, various, various, uh, various ways. Um, he became very well known by the end of his life. He had grown quite the reputation. And there's a fantastic story. This is what I thought of this week as I was prepping this message of, of, of Dr. Carey. Uh, he was on his deathbed, which was actually a couch, so a death couch, um, which was incidentally at the Angus Library. I took a picture of it, which is weird, right? To take a picture of like, this is where he died. I don't know. It's strange. Um, but he was on his deathbed and was visited by a young man named Alexander Duff, who was just enamored with Dr. Carey. And they had this conversation and talked and, and prayed together. And as Alexander Duff was leaving the room, the story goes that Dr. Carey said to him, Mr. Duff, he said, you've been going on and on this entire time about Dr. Carey this and Dr. Carey that. And he said, when I'm dead and gone, speak no more of Dr. Carey. Only speak of Dr. Carey's savior. And I thought, man, here I am just disobeying his advice, talking about Dr. Carey. But a tremendous, I think it sort of reveals a tremendous aspect of his heart, right? That he wanted Jesus to be magnified. He didn't care about his legacy. He wanted the legacy of Jesus to be magnified in everything he did. He was essentially saying the same thing that John the Baptist was saying in John chapter 3. In John 3, if you remember, some of John the Baptist's disciples come to him with, with what looks like jealousy. In verse 26, it says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. They're like, why doesn't this bother you more? You baptized him and he's getting all the attention. This is not right. In verse 30, John the Baptist articulated to his disciples what William Carey articulated to Alexander Duff, which is, he must increase, but I must decrease. In our passage this morning in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we find this decreasing of John and the increasing of Jesus happening in real time. One ministry ends, the other begins. One of these individuals moves out of the spotlight, one of them moves into the spotlight. And, and one of the things I want you to connect with this morning is that this was a perfectly timed transition of power. Everything that happens in this passage that we're going to read about and discuss here this morning happens at precisely the right time. It is finely tuned in every way. If you have your Bibles open to Mark 1, let's read together verses 14 and 15. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This passage serves, more or less, as the opening of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has, Mark has been sort of unfolding this story in chapter 1 about this coming time where the Messiah is here and the ministry of the Messiah. This is it. This is the moment he's been working towards. Verses 14 and 15. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's been baptized. He's been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. We talked about that last week. And now here he is. The ministry begins. And it comes right on the coattails of the closing of John the Baptist's ministry. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack these two verses. And, and what I want us to do is consider how John plays a very specific and important role for us as Christians today to understand what the expectations are for us as followers of Jesus. I think he serves as a great model 
for, for what we as followers of Jesus also ought to expect in our own lives and in our own ministries, whatever that is, fill in the blank, whatever God calls you to. Everyone has a ministry if you're a believer in Christ. John sets up a very good model for not only what we might expect, but but for maybe how we ought to think as well as disciples of Jesus. Let's begin this morning by looking at the end of the messenger's ministry. This is a really small part of this passage. It's, it's actually really easy to just read right over. If you're reading really quickly, you don't even necessarily, it doesn't even necessarily register with you. But look at verse 14. And, and, and I want to read a few translations of this because I want to hone in on a specific word. And I want to point out why some translations, I think, miss the mark a little bit. Not, not miss the mark, but, but they... We'll, we'll talk about it. I'll explain. The ESV is the, the translation I read from and preach from. The elect standard version. I'm kidding. It's the English standard version. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. Now, after John was arrested, that's that first phrase, after John was arrested, the NIV says it this way, after John was put in prison, the New American Standard Version says, now after John had been taken into custody... All of these, more or less, are saying the same thing. So understand, they're all very good translations. The NIV, NIV and the NASB add this idea of prison or custody into it, which is maybe implied by the verbiage here. Uh, the King James Version and the New King James Version do this as well, this idea of custody or prison. And certainly the idea of prison is implied by this, by this arresting or handing over or delivering. But I don't like this translation particularly because, A, it's not what the text actually says. You don't have the word prison or custody in the original language. But B, there's something else I think that's being implied here in this verbiage that, that is missed if you add that in to sort of try to clarify what Mark is doing. The Greek verb here, handed over, paradothenai, it's the aorist passive infinitive of paradidomi. And it's a verb that means literally to hand over or to deliver. And the reason I don't like the idea of adding prison or custody into the translation is it limits the theology of what I think is underlying here that Mark is doing. It constrains it unnecessarily. Because when you examine how Mark uses this verb, he uses it very specifically in a lot of different places, all of which seem to be pointing to sort of the same thing. You, you find that there's something being foreshadowed in the usage of this verb here in chapter 1, verse 14. John is handed over in the same way that Jesus will be handed over in his ministry. So for example, in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, it says, for Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the son of man is going to be handed over into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is preparing his disciples in Mark 9 for the reality that the same thing that happened to John the Baptist is also going to happen to him. John was handed over. Jesus, the son of man, will also be handed over. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, he says something similar. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Same verb, paradidomi, to hand over. You get a little bit of a different expression in, in Mark 14, 41. It says, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. This is right before the crucifixion. The son of man is betrayed, paradidomi, handed over into the hands of sinners. 
So you have this idea of handing over as almost an act of betrayal, right? As an act of, of, of aggression. Uh, you get it in Mark chapter 3, verse 19, specifically to the actions of Judas Iscariot. It says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Paradidomi, who handed over Jesus. You, you see, John the Baptist is the messenger of the Messiah, right? He's the forerunner of the Lord. He is the one, we talked about this in week one, who's going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And he is handed over to the authorities of this world to be killed in the same way that the Messiah will be handed over to the authorities of this world and be killed as well. I think the point that Mark is subtly making here is that, get this, John is the forerunner of Jesus in every way possible, in every manner possible. He is both the forerunner of Jesus' life and the foreshadower of Jesus' death. John is a mouthpiece of the same message and a martyr of the same misfortune. He mirrors, he is, he is preparing the way of the Lord in every way, including being handed over and killed. The ending of John's ministry gives us a dramatic glimpse into what we should expect for the Messiah as well, which is not earthly triumph, but suffering and death, and then eventual triumph. John's life models this for us. It is predictive for what we should expect will happen to the Messiah and predictive for one other group in the gospel according to Mark, which is us. You're like, please don't say it. Yes, us. Mark 13 verse 9, what does Jesus say concerning his own disciples? But you be on your guard, for they will hand you over, paradidomi, to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them about the name of Jesus. Jesus didn't call you to your best life now. He called you to a beaten life now. He calls you to glory later. Again, these are details you don't hear that often in gospel presentations, right? Believe the gospel. It's going to be great. Your sins are going to be forgiven. You're going to be free. And then follow Jesus into suffering and death. It's going to be amazing. We talked last week about how when you come to faith, especially when you profess faith through the ordinance of baptism, you make yourself a known threat to the enemy of God. You live in a world, the Bible says, that is governed by evil. You, you need to come to terms with this. What does 1 John 5.19 say? We know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How much of the world? The whole world, all of it. In John 14, 30, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelievers. You see, when you come to faith, you move from being a bystander in this, in this struggle between evil and God's people. You move from being collateral damage in this war to a known threat you establish yourself publicly. I am a believer in Jesus. These are my intentions to follow him and to proclaim his message. And I will take responsibility for the fallout of that as well. And you, like John and like the Lord Jesus Christ himself, will suffer for it on this side of eternity. Well, but Pastor Derek, I, the Bible says that we're more than conquerors. 
So what about that? Yeah, it does say that. What does it say literally right before that in the verse before, Romans 8, 35? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. By the way, I love that sword and tribulation are equivalent to nakedness. That's how bad it is, right? He's not saying that these things are off the table. He's not saying that you don't have to worry about these things. He's saying, no, you do have to worry about these things. These are a reality for you. But even in spite of these things that you will almost certainly face in your life, you don't have to worry about it separating you from God's love because you are more than a conqueror in that though you experience devastation in a world governed by Satan, it won't shake you from the boundless love of God and Christ for you. That makes you more than a conqueror. Not a lack of suffering, but perseverance in the midst of suffering. John would be handed over. Jesus would soon be handed over. And Jesus says, and all of you who follow me, follow me to the grave. And I will bring you to the newness of life. There is no resurrection, hear this, without death. We love the idea of resurrection. We forget what happens right before resurrection. We die. John will go on to be beheaded. Mark covers this in a flashback scene all the way up in chapter 6, which at our rate will be somewhere around 2027. Who knows? Could be later. I'm kidding. I did outline Mark this week. I spent a couple of hours doing this. I'm not totally done with it yet. We're going to be in Mark for a while. So just strap in, maybe over a year, more or less. We're going to break it up with an Advent series in December. We'll have a Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday service as well. But look, if you get tired of a story about Jesus, you may be in the wrong place, is all I'm saying. For now, this is the closing chapter of John. This is the end of his ministry, the end of the messenger's ministry, and that brings us to the beginning of the Messiah's ministry. The beginning of the Messiah's ministry. Let's just read 14 and 15 again. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark records this as the beginning of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but what I want you to notice is the emphasis that Mark focuses on. What is the focus of the Messiah's ministry? If, if you could sum up Jesus' ministry in one word or one phrase, one big idea, what would that one word or phrase be? What would the focus be? Let me tell you what the focus is not first, and then I'll tell you what, what it is. Um, the focus was not miracles. Anyone have any problem with that? Good. The focus was not miracles. Now, to be clear, let me just be very clear about this. Miracles were a major part of the Messiah's ministry. There's no doubt about that. The Gospels go through incredible links to describe those things happening. The Old Testament even speaks to this. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and uh, the, the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. I mean, these are not metaphors. This is not like, yeah, metaphorically, he's going to... No. These are Old Testament expectations for the Messiah. How are we going to know when the Messiah is here? Because he's going to do this stuff. And you're going to be like, wow, no one else can do that. That must be the Messiah, right? And Jesus actually fulfills this. It says, the eyes of the blind will be opened. Jesus heals a blind man in Mark 8, 22 through 26. It says, the ears of the deaf unstopped and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Jesus does this in Mark 7, 31 through 37. 
It says, the lame man shall leap like a deer, which is a lot of leaping. Have you ever seen the deer leap? It's a lot of leaping, right? He does this. Mark 2, 1 through 12. Jesus actually fulfills these things. This is a significant part of the Messiah's ministry. It's just not the focus of the ministry. The focus is also not military might. Again, that might sound strange to us, but it would have been an expectation for believers back then. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, a messianic psalm, uh, what we would expect from the coming Messiah, the anointed one. It says uh, in verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The people of God believed that the Messiah would come and establish dominion and rule over all of the nations in righteousness and justice. He would destroy Rome. He would wipe out the other pagan kingdoms that oppose God and his commandments. And he would usher in a time of peace and rule over all of creation. That is true of the Messiah. It just hasn't happened yet. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. I'm just going to read this. This is the, the, the vision of this coming time, this military reign over all of the world by the Messiah. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, this is not the Jesus you're going to see on Daystar. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed. This is great. And this is not Sunday school material for kids. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Let me stop here for a moment. and just I got to bring this detail out because it's one of the most powerful details, I think, in this passage. The armies of heaven, that's angels, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. What is this? These are dress linens. These are banquet clothes. If you, if you evaluate ancient Near Eastern practice and Roman practice of, of, of what you would wear at war versus at banquet with the king, this is banquet clothes. In other words, the armies of heaven, the angels, they don't wear their armor because they don't intend to fight in this battle. They don't need to fight in this battle. The living word of God, Jesus Christ, will handle Satan and demons by himself. There is no cosmic struggle. You got to figure that out. Movies, television, they present it as like this grand war, Armageddon, right? The angels and the demons and, and Satan and Jesus, and they come in and like sword fight. That's not what happens. There's no struggle. The angels show up in banquet clothes. They're on their horses watching. This is medieval times for them. They're eating and, and celebrating. <laughs> Jesus dominates them. I mean, look what it says. The angels were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, kind of like a tattoo, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the future coming Messiah who will come back in the second advent to establish righteousness and justice. And he will come with all, all of the fury of God's wrath against those who rebel against him. He'll destroy the wicked. He will topple the nations and he will establish peace on the earth. That is the future focus, not the present one. 
in Mark 1. The focus of Jesus' earthly ministry was not miracles. It was not military might. The focus was a message. If you had to summarize Jesus' ministry into one idea, one main focus, it is a message. Verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is, by the way, a word that's just been hijacked out of the political Roman realm in the Bible. Keruso, to proclaim. It is a word that was used for a herald that would come onto the scene and proclaim official news, official business of the king. When the herald came and began to proclaim the king's message, the people better listen. Because if you do something against what this herald is saying, you're guilty of treason and death. This is a, an, an incredible way of thinking about what Jesus is doing. He is heralding the message from the king, from the kingdom, which, what does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. This is it. This is the goal. This is the emphasis. This is the focus. All of the other stuff, the miracles, the military, the hope for national restoration, all of that is important, but only insofar as it magnifies the message. Now, I want to camp here on this message for the remainder of our time, and, and I want you to notice various aspects of what Jesus is communicating to the people around him. Number one, it is a timely message. Verse 15, it says, the time is fulfilled. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? It means that he does not arrive on the scene randomly. This wasn't just like, oh, it's Wednesday and the Messiah is here now. Like, that's not what happened, right? It was a perfectly timed moment, a perfectly staged operation by God himself. There was a moment in the mind of God when the Messiah would appear and God executed that moment perfectly. In fact, the word time here, very interesting. It's the Greek term kairos, which is notable because Greek has at least two words for time, kairos and chronos. Chronos, think chronological. But he uses kairos. Chronos is a word that means like a definite period, an era. You could think of it that way. But that's not the word Jesus used here. He uses kairos, a word that means like a fitting or a suitable time for a specific event. It's the perfect time for a specific occasion. This is, this is what Paul is essentially communicating in, in, in Galatians 4.4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Jesus didn't arrive early or late, but exactly when God intended him to arrive. There's that great Lord of the Rings uh, line, if you've ever seen the movies, if you haven't, what are you doing? Um, and the line was actually native to the movie. It wasn't a part of the original book. Uh, Jackson uh, added it, which I think was a, a good addition. But if you remember, it's in the very beginning when, when Gandalf shows up to the Shire and, and Frodo comes running out and he says, you're late. And, and Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early but he arrives precisely when he means to. You could say similarly, the Messiah did not arrive late, nor did he arrive early, but he arrived precisely when God meant him to. This is a timely message, perfectly executed, but more than that, it's an urgent message. He comes with urgency. Not only is the time fulfilled, but he says the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Throughout the Gospels, when you read the various Gospel accounts, specifically the synoptics, the kingdom of God is a future earthly kingdom. It's, it's the Revelation 19 kingdom, the one that Jesus will come back to establish, uh, where, where Christ will rule over all of the nations through Israel. This is, by the way, just as a side note, whenever Israel shows up in the news, this is why it becomes newsworthy. 
Because Israel is the eschatological focus, the end focus of the New Testament. Not necessarily as a people, but as a place, geographically speaking. When Christ returns, it's not going to be over Manhattan or Miami or Dallas. This is not a North American story that we're reading. This is not a United States story. This is not a South or a Southern or a Texan story. This is an ancient Near Eastern story. Israel is the central location, the central focus, geographically speaking. So the phrase kingdom of God, when you read it in the Gospels, it's usually used to describe a future physical earthly reign of the kingdom in Israel over all of the nations, except in Mark. Except in Mark. In Mark, it's not a future physical location. It's not a future physical kingdom. It is a present spiritual kingdom. There are maybe two passages in all of Mark where it it seems like it may be talking about something future. Mark overwhelmingly uses it to describe the now, the present spiritual reign of Christ over the hearts and minds of those who believe the gospel, repent, and are born again. The present kingdom of God, this one that is here in the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, he says, is now at hand, meaning it's in your midst, it's in front of you. And what does he say to do as a result of that? Pray about it talk about it a little bit and consider your option. No, he says, repent, repent and believe the gospel. Now, what does it mean to repent? It means, remember, metanoeo, to change your mind about something. And this change of mind leads to a change of action. You can't, repentance hasn't happened if you haven't changed what you're doing. You understand that. It's not simply thinking about something differently. It's thinking about something differently to the extent that it makes you act differently. It's a word that means to come into agreement with God about the nature and reality of your sin. It means saying, yes, God, I agree that this thing I've done is sin. And I am going to have a change of mind now concerning it. I'm going to agree with you, change my mind about doing this, and turn away and move the opposite direction. That is what repentance means. And it applies to every human being. Every human being. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like whether you're male or female, what language you speak, what socioeconomic bracket you fall into, none of these things matter. It applies to everyone because every human being knows, if you're being honest, that there is something deeply wrong within you that you cannot figure out how to fix on your own. You do things that you wish you didn't do. You respond to people in ways you wish you didn't respond. You say things and have said things in the past to people that you wish you hadn't said. But the good news of this kingdom that is now here with this king is that if you repent of those things, if you agree with God that they're wrong and you have a change of mind and turn away, he offers you a solution to these things. He offers a solution to the sickness within you. To repent, to believe the gospel, to receive forgiveness, to be free of this burden that you yourself cannot bear any longer and to become a citizen of that kingdom that is now here. Submitting your heart and your mind to the lordship of Jesus Christ, not only today but for every day 
thereafter. If you've ever uh, seen someone be sworn in as a citizen of the United States, they have to stand up, they have to repeat something. There's this whole ceremony, right? That's the language here. This is a citizenship change. The Bible says that you are taken from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are different after belief. You have been granted citizenship into this kingdom that is presently ruling and reigning now in the hearts and minds of all God's people. And you're saying, yeah, Lord, I'm in. I will follow the rules of the land. I will swear fealty to the king. I will serve him with my every last breath. That kingdom is here. It was not only, listen to this, it was not only a timely and an urgent message in Mark chapter 1. It is all the more timely and urgent now. Right now. There is not, hear me, there is not an unlimited amount of time to believe this gospel. There is a time, there's a clock that is ticking down. Do you remember the words of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 through 15? It says, but urge one another, exhort one another every day. How often? Every day. As often or as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then listen to verse 15. As it is said... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You have a choice before you, dear people, to repent of your sin, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews is reminding you, don't harden your heart. If you hear the Spirit saying to you, you haven't done this, you haven't done this, you know that's there, you know there's brokenness there, you know you're sick, you know there's an answer that's right here and all you gotta do is repent and believe the gospel and you've never done it before, Hebrews is saying, don't wait another moment. Today is the day of salvation. There is limited time. There's limited time. In the same way that the fullness of time came in Galatians 4.4 when God sent forth his son, there is yet another time bound up in the heart of God that only the Father knows when Jesus will come again for a second time and it will not be like the first time. The first time when Jesus came, we sang joy to the world. The second time it will be joy to some and judgment for others. What will it be for you? Will it be joyful or will it be judgment? Will you bow in worship and reverence or in fear of condemnation? Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be certain this morning that you have believed the gospel, that you have repented of your sin and that you have become a citizen of this kingdom because when the king returns to this kingdom, his people, his subjects will celebrate and those who rebel will be wiped out. Today is the day, now is the hour. I want to give you a moment to respond this morning. We're going to, uh, Kelsey's going to lead us through a song, just a portion of one, and give you time to just be alone with the Lord, to worship, to pray. And, and I, 
I am talking to you this morning. If you have never given your life to Jesus, I urge you, give your life to Jesus. Now is the time. Do not harden your hearts if you hear his voice today. And then I'll come back and close us. If you'd like to come forward in response, either to pray or to receive the Lord. We don't do that often, but today is the day. Thank you.